dad found the show on Netflix last night, mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons I couldn't focus. Okay. Because I sat there and I was watching it. I had my computer in front of me, but I couldn't focus. Um, it's called The End of the Fucking World. <laughs> and it starts out really, really messed up, but it's like a train wreck. And you can't look away from it. Is that that one um, with that guy who, or that, like, teenager who's like, I want to kill somebody? Yes. Okay, I haven't seen it. It looked kind of interesting, but I didn't watch it. It, it's, yes. It's yes. It's yes. Yeah, okay. It is, um, it's very interesting. And we, we thought a couple times, okay, we're just, we're going to turn this off. But then it kept pulling us back in. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, this is dumb. Move on. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we got like four or five episodes in last night. Speaking of four. Four? I watched the series finale of The Good Place the other day. Oh. I cried. No. It was so good. Oh. I'm so sad that that show is over. It's literally my favorite show of anything. Why are they ending it? The creator of the show was just like, this is the direction that I wanted to take it in. I feel like I, like, this is a good cutting off point. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I can just keep it going because then it would turn into something that you're just like, you get bored of. Yeah. Or it would turn into something that's just never ending, like Supernatural. (laughs) Yeah, but Supernatural's ending this season, like season 15. Yeah, but that's... Four four seasons, four or five seasons, that's a good, that's good, but 15 seasons, it's like, come on. But I'm so glad we met Charlie, and we met Rowena, and Jack, who just came in season, what, 14? I don't watch it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> there was yeah. just, it was just too much. I well, was like, they were recycling plots, like... They're yeah. just bringing in more and more people, and, like, didn't they, like, go back and just be like, hey, all those monsters you killed are back now, or something? Yeah. Yeah, I can, uh... Thanks to, um, I can't remember her name. The Darkness. Sure, I don't sure. know. Yeah. God's sister. Okay, sure. so... started another podcast oh jesus <laughs> have you finished any yeah i'm like caught up on, on every everything. single one okay. that i've ever talked about on here like people think like every every time i say like i've started a new podcast people probably assume that i don't finish any of these but i literally sit at a desk doing basically data entry for eight hours a day so i can listen to anything i want all day so the podcast I started listening to is a um, Black Lightning after show podcast. Oh, really? Yes. Black Lightning is 
I think my favorite DC superhero show. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's the only one that I've been able to actually stick with after the first two seasons. Mine was Smallville. Other than Smallville. Okay. Everybody, everybody <laughs> loves Smallville. Well, not everybody. I loved Smallville. But for most of them, yeah, no, I couldn't stick through them after, like, the second season. I don't know why, but I love Black Lightning. It's the best. Really? I've yeah. only seen a few episodes, and I, I couldn't get into it. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Okay, what I was well, like. obviously you love it because you're listening to a podcast of the after show. Yeah, and I mean it's like the first superhero, black superhero show, mm-hmm. and the people who like run the podcast. It's like a all black women panel that talk about it, so it's like really cool. Well, that's awesome. Yeah, but yeah, I just wanted to give them a little shout out because it's good. Wow. She wants to give a shout out to. Hey, I'm Rachel. I'm Grace. Welcome to the podcast. Myths and misfortunes. Yes, we're a paranormal and true crime podcast. Each week we pick somewhere in the world and base our stories on that place. And or surrounding areas. So. Well. This week. Where are we, Rachel? <laughs> <laughs> this week we are in Portland, Oregon. Portland. Wow. A lot of the time when... Um, I hear people on the internet talking about, like, Portland this, Portland that. I think they're talking about, like, our Portland. We have a Portland? Yeah. Oh. It's, like, downtown. Yeah, don't go downtown. It's a Portland area. No. No. Okay. Mm. But, yeah, anytime I see that, I'm like, oh, wow. There's somebody in the Portland area. And then I'm like, oh, no, that's okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, my sources are Wikipedia, theatlantic.com, USHistory.com, LocalHistories.org, and Britannica.com. Portland, Oregon, is the largest city in Oregon, as well as having the largest population. It is a major port in the Wilmette Valley and is located right between the Wilmette and Columbia Rivers. As of 2018, its population was estimated to be roughly 653,115. That is a lot less than I thought. I know, right? Portland sits on top of an extinct volcanic field known as the Boring Lava Field. The what? The Boring Lava Field. Boring? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, with Mount St. Helens, a very active volcano. Yeah. Only 50 miles away. So the not boring volcano <laughs> and the boring lava Volcanic field. field. Yep. Or, yeah, lava field. I don't know how a lava field can be boring, but all right. Who knows? Unless it means, like, boring, like boring into the earth. That's probably exactly what it means. Oh. <laughs> But it's called the Boring Lava Field. It's funny. The land that is now Portland was inhabited for centuries by two tribes of the Upper Chinook Indians in the... Oh, I can't read my handwriting. <laughs> in the Multnomah people. Oh, this was back when we were writing instead of... Oh, yeah. This was when I was writing, not typing. Yeah. It was doing my story that I was like, screw this. I'm going to type it. and print it uh yeah was inhabited for centuries by two tribes of the upper chinook indians the 
Multnomah people and the Wasco-Wishram people. If I said that wrong, I am so sorry. Google I was can not... lead you astray a lot. Well, I tried to Google how to pronounce it, and mm-hmm. nothing came up. Oh. So it's like, oh, okay, I guess it's uh, the way it's Guess spelled. we just gotta sound it out. Yeah, phonically. However, their contact with Europeans resulted in the deaths of many tribes due to smallpox and malaria. Mm. Between 1830 and 1840s, the area was known as the Clearing by American, Canadian, and British traders, trappers, and settlers. It was mainly used en route between Oregon City and Fort Vancouver. Hmm. In 1843, a Tennessee pioneer by the name of William Overton beached his canoe on the banks of Wilmette River. 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 He was awestruck by the beauty of the area and thought it would be the perfect spot for a new town. With the help of Massachusetts attorney Asa Lovejoy and his loan of 25 cents, (laughs) he filed a land claim. What's that in today's? Oh, I didn't look. I should have looked. Hold on. What year is this? 1843. That should be like 50 bucks. In 2020, that is equivalent to $8.68. Wow. For a land claim. Wow. Awesome. He filed a land claim on the 640 acres that they had beached on. Hmm. However... Overton quickly grew tired of clearing trees and developing the infrastructure for the new settlement. Honestly, clearing trees, super hard, so I get it. Yeah. Like, it's super hard. That's why you just build tree houses that, as the trees grow. But you need wood to build said tree houses, so you still have to clear trees to get just that wood. Just a couple. <laughs> No, a few. Just a lot. It's fine. So he then sold his portion of the land to Francis W. Pettigrove. Fun fact, Pettigrove and Lovejoy decided to flip a coin in order to determine the name of the settlement. Pettigrove won two out of three tosses and named the new settlement after his hometown of Portland, Maine. Hmm. Then on November 1st, 1846... Lovejoy sold his half of the land claim to Benjamin Stark. We encounter a lot of Starks. There was one in Louisville, right? Mm-hmm. There was one in Louisville. There was one in... Maybe it was just Louisville. No, we've had a few. Look, we're going to go back and listen to it, and we'll figure it out. Anyway. I, should look th- I can just look through my documents and be like... That too. After three years... Pettigrove left Portland in order to pursue the California gold rush. Mm-hmm. On September 22nd, 1848, he sold literally the entire town except for about 64 already sold lots and two blocks, one each for himself and one for Stark. Although Stark actually owned half of them still. Well, Pettigrove, however, ignored Stark's rights completely because he was on the East Coast with no plans of returning to Oregon. Oh. It was sold to a Daniel Lonsdale, who was a tanner for 5000 in leather. 
On March 30, 1849, Lonsdale split the Portland claim with Stephen Coffin, who paid 6000 for his half. By August, Stark was pressuring Lonsdale for his half of the town. In December of 1849, a guy named William Chapman bought what he thought was a third of the town for 26666 plus his provisions for free legal services. What did he actually get? In January 1850, Lonsdale traveled to San Francisco in order to negotiate the land claim with Stark. They came to an agreement on March 1st, 1850, in which Stark was given the land north of Stark Street and roughly 3000 from land already sold in the area. Obviously, Chapman and Coffin were not happy, but they did reluctantly agree. So basically, it was split four ways. <laughs> oh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> so he got a fourth. He got a fourth, yeah. Instead of a third. Instead of a third, he got a fourth, and his fourth was a lot smaller than he thought it was going to be. Yeah. So, obviously, Coffin and Chapman were not happy, of course. In August 1873, a major fire destroyed 20 blocks of downtown Portland. It caused $1.3 million in damages. During the 1860s, major railroad magnets recruited numerous Chinese workers to provide cheap but hard-working labor. Portland was one of the cities who attracted a large number of these workers. <sighs> However, as an ethnic group, the Chinese were looked upon by whites as a threat to their livelihoods. This led to a grow growing civil unrest and open racism in the community. After 1890, Portland became increasingly segregated by class and ethnicity. Hmm. In 1891, the city merged with Albania in East Portland. So, speaking of segregation, after Albania was annexed into Portland, it became the only part of the city where African Americans were allowed to buy homes. Oh, after the Realty Board of Portland approved a code of ethics in 1999. Hmm. The code of ethics literally only allowed Afrikaners to buy from Albania. That was it. That's kind of shit. It, yes, it very is. It forbade realtors and bankers from selling or giving loans to minorities for properties located in white neighborhoods. Fuck you. Yeah. Stupid thing. Unfortunately, there is still segregation there even today, even with Portland being the progressive city that it is. On June 9th, 1934, roughly 1,400 members of the International Longshoremen's Association participated in the West Coast Waterfront Strike, which shut down shipping in every port along the West Coast. They were demanding wage increases, overtime wage increases, and a six-hour workday, along with a 30-hour work week. There were numerous instances of violence between the strikers and the police. Thankfully, the strikers won and their demands were met. In 1940, Portland was on the brink of an economic boom and a population boom that was fueled by the $2 billion spent by the U.S. Congress on expanding the Bonneville Power Administration. There was a great need to produce material for the Great Britain... For the Great Britain. For the Great Britain. 
for Great Britain's, where am I? Great Preparations Britain. for the war. In 1941, Kaiser Shipyards received federal contracts to build Liberty ships and aircraft carrier escorts. Two shipyards were subsequently built along the Wilmette River in Portland. This created a ton of new jobs and brought so many more people to port to Portland. I am saying Portland. Portland a lot. Well, do you know where we are, guys? <laughs> we're in Portland. <laughs> <laughs> By the end of the war, the population of Portland had grown to three hundred fifty-nine thousand with an additional 100,000 people working or living in nearby cities. Unfortunately, during this time, Portland also saw an increase in organized crime. The extensive network of organized crime in Portland was largely dominated by Jim Elkins. Between 1969 and 1970, public transportation in Portland transitioned from private to public ownership largely due to the fact that the private owners found it difficult to make a profit and were on the verge of bankruptcy. Oh. Go fake, yeah. During the dot-com boom from 1994 to 2000, a tremendous amount of young adults in their 20s to 30s found themselves in Portland. They were drawn to the promise of a city with abundant nature, urban growth boundaries, cheaper rent, and opportunities to work in the graphic design and internet industries. Hipsters. I mean, really. Uh, well, the low cost of living also drew in people from Seattle and San Francisco when the economy bubble burst. So. Yeah, I'd probably do it too. I'm not going to lie. Yeah, so I mean, not just his. I know. I was just making a joke. <laughs> Today, Portland is considered a progressive and contemporary city. High-tech industries make up the majority of Portland's economy. It boasts more than 14 square miles of parklands, as well as being a center for small craft beer brewing. The Wilmette River Valley is also a scenic wine-producing region. Hello. Yes, hello. Let's go there specifically for the wine. And everyone, that is Portland. 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 Portland, Oregon, to be exact. Not Portland, Maine. Yes. Not Portland in downtown Louisville. Yeah. <laughs> All right. What have you got for me today? Today, I have the... I think this might be... This is the first true crime not involving murder. Oh, good. Yes. It is an extensive story. And get ready for a long episode, guys. Um, Because I'm doing D.B. Cooper. Yeah, uh, it was so much. I had to cut out so much. There, there are things I really wanted to keep in, but if I did, then this would be a two-hour episode, and... And we don't need a two-hour episode. Yeah. I mean, we might, but we don't. It was so long. Like, I mean, really fucking long. Uh, like, I, I started off with 29 pages. Oh, Jesus. I got it down to 10. <laughs> Well, 10 is better than 29. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so let's go into it. You might hear a... Because we're still getting used to paper instead of just being on our laptops. I feel like it might be a waste of paper and I feel kind of bad, but... We can always recycle and shred. 
Yeah, yeah. So my sources for my story are Wikipedia, Washington Post, and Britannica.com. Everything else that I found was all about, like, suspects and basically had the same, like, recycled information Mm -hmm. as the other three things that I found. So, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. All right. The day before Thanksgiving... November 24th, 1971, a middle-aged man carrying a black briefcase approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines at Portland International Airport. He identified himself... Identified it. it. (laughs) He identified as himself. He identified himself as Dan Cooper and used cash to purchase a one-way ticket on Flight 305, a 30-minute trip to Seattle. Cooper boarded the aircraft, a Boeing 727, and took seat 18C. Some sources said it was 18E, others said it was 15D. Either way, it was in the rear of the passenger cabin. Uh Uh-huh. So, witnesses described Cooper as a quiet man who appeared to be in his mid-40s, wearing a business suit with a black tie and a white shirt. He ordered a drink of bourbon and soda while the flight was waiting to take off. Flight 305 departed Portland on schedule at 2.50 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed a note to Florence Schaffner, the flight attendant who was nearest to him, uh, mm-hmm. who was sitting in a jump seat attached to the aft stair door. Schaffner, assuming it was just his phone number or something, dropped it into her purse without looking at it. And that's when Cooper leaned toward her and whispered, Miss, you better look at that note. I have a bomb. Oh my god, I didn't think he actually said I have a bomb. Yeah. I thought he said, yeah. Miss, you might want to look at that note. Nope. According to Schaffner, the note was printed in neat, all capital letters with a felt tip pen. The exact wording isn't really known because Cooper was really smart. Mm-hmm. And he asked for the note back. So they couldn't, like... Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't, like, trace back his handwriting. Right. But Schaffner told investigators that the note said that C- Cooper had a bomb in his briefcase. After Schaffner read the note, Cooper told her to sit beside him. Schaffner did as requested and then quietly asked to see the bomb, which is a lot more brave than I would have been, not gonna lie. Cooper opened his briefcase long enough for her to glimpse eight red cylinders attached to wires coated with red insulation and a large cylindrical battery. He closed the briefcase and stated his demands. Two hundred thousand thousands. Thousands. $200,000 in negotiable American currency, which today would be $1,269,007.41. But what is negotiable American? Exactly. I don't know. I didn't Google that. Okay. So he also asked for four parachutes and a fuel truck standing by in Seattle to refuel the plane upon arrival. Schaffner went to tell the pilots what was up, and when she returned, Cooper was wearing dark sunglasses, which, like... Why? Okay. I guess so... I mean, I don't know. Because she'd already seen his eyes. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I don't know. He just wanted to look cool. That's all. Uh, Maybe. Yeah. Maybe he was like, oh, she cute. Let me just... Oh, she cute. We gotta put the shades on. Yeah. Be mysterious. So the pilot, William Scott, contacted Seattle-Tacoma Airport Air Traffic Control, who alerted local and federal authorities. The other 36 passengers were given false information that their arrival in Seattle would be delayed because of a minor technical difficulty. 
Northwest Orient, now Northwest Airlines president Donald Nyrop, authorized payment of the ransom and ordered all employees to cooperate fully with Cooper's demands. Mm-hmm. The aircraft circled Puget Sound for approximately two hours to allow Seattle police and the FBI time to assemble his parachutes and ransom money. Flight attendant Tina Mucklow said that Cooper seemed to be familiar with the area because at one point he said, looks like Tacoma down there as the plane flew above it. He looks also, like Tacoma down there. Looks like there. Tacoma down there. <laughs> he also correctly mentioned that the McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive at the time from Seattle-Tacoma Airport. Okay. Schaffner described him as calm, polite, and well-spoken. Not not like really like what you would think of criminals who were in like a hostage situation. Yeah. You know, like he wasn't angry. He wasn't frightened or any of that. Just chill. Yeah. Just chill. Mucklow told investigators he wasn't nervous. He seemed rather nice. He was never cruel or nasty. He was thoughtful and calm all the time. Okay. He also ordered a second bourbon and soda, paid his drink tab, and attempted to give Mucklow the change, and even offered to request meals for the flight crew during the stop in Seattle. That's so nice. Yeah, that's so nice of him. So the FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle banks, um... It was 10,000 unmarked $20 bills with specific serial numbers and from a specific series, and they made microfilm photographs of each one of them. That's smart. Yeah. (laughs) For some reason, Cooper rejected the military-issue parachutes offered by McCord Air Force personnel, instead demanding civilian parachutes with manually operated ripcords, which Seattle police got from a local skydiving school. Oh, He's just going to go skydiving. Well. 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 <laughs> at 5.24 p.m., uh, Cooper was informed that his demands had been met, and at 5.39 p.m., the aircraft landed at Seattle at the Seattle-Tacoma airport. The sun had already set, so Cooper instructed the pilot to drive the plane to an isolated, brightly lit section of the apron and close each window shade in the cabin so, like, no snipers could shoot him. Okay. Or bas- and so nobody could see him. Once the money and parachutes were delivered, Cooper ordered all of the passengers, Schaffner and senior flight attendant Alice Hancock to leave the plane. While refueling, Cooper told the cockpit crew his flight plan. It was a southeast course towards Mexico City at the minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft, Mm -hmm. approximately 115 miles per hour at a maximum 10,000 foot altitude. He demanded that the landing gear remain deployed in the takeoff landing position, that the wing flaps be lowered 15 degrees, and that the cabin remain unpressurized. That's very specific. Yes. He's a pilot. (laughs) He's a military Air Force pilot of some sort. That is a very popular theory. Co-pilot William Radizak informed Cooper that the plane would only be able to fly about 1,000 miles at that speed and at altitude before needing to refuel before reaching Mexico. Cooper and the crew talked about it and agreed that they would stop in Reno, Nevada to Mm -hmm. refuel again. With the plane's rear exit door open and its staircase extended, Cooper directed the pilot to take off, but Northwest Airlines home office objected, saying that it was unsafe with the aft staircase deployed. Cooper said it was ins- it was safe and that he wouldn't argue the point. <laughs> but he said he would lower it once they were airborne. Eh, okay. At approximately 7.40pm, 
the Boeing 747 took off with only five people on board. Cooper, the, the pilot Scott, co-pilot Radizak, flight attendant Mucklow, and flight engineer H.G. E. Anderson. Two F-106 fighter planes from the McCord Air Force Base followed behind them, one above it and the other just below it, out of Cooper's view. Mm-hmm. Another plane from an unrelated dash Air National Guard mission also shattered the plane before running low on fuel and turning back. So they had five planes in total following them. Oh, wow. Yeah. After takeoff, Cooper told Mucklow to join the rest of the crew in the cockpit and to stay there. As she was leaving, Mucklow saw Cooper tying something around his waist. And at approximately 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit, indicating that the aft air stair apparatus had been activated. And when the crew offered assistance over the intercom, Cooper refused it. And then the crew noticed a change in air pressure, indicating that the aft door was open. At approximately 8.13 p.m., the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, which was significant enough to require the pilots to settle the plane back into straight flight. Mm -hmm. At approximately 10.15, the aircraft's aft aft air stair... (laughs) Like, say that five times Aft air stair. The aircraft's aft air stair was still deployed when Scott and Radazak landed the 727 at the Reno airport. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and Reno police surrounded the jet, and an armed search quickly confirmed that Cooper was no longer on the plane. So he jumped midway between Seattle and Rio. Reno. Yes. Rio! Somewhere in there. <laughs> FBI agents uncovered 66 unidentified fingerprints on the plane. The agents also found Cooper's black clip-on tie, his tie clip, and two of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened and two suspension lines had been cut from its canopy. Authorities interviewed eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno, and everyone who personally interacted with Cooper, and a series of composite sketches were developed. Okay. Local police and FBI agents immediately began questioning possible suspects and considered more than 800 men. Um, Jesus Christ. Yeah, of these, all but two dozen were eliminated from the investigation. Okay, 800 to two dozen. Two bit? Two bit. An Oregon man named D.B. Cooper, who had a minor uh, record, was one of the first people, persons of interest in the case. He was contacted by the Portland police on the off chance that the hijacker had used his real name or the same alias in a previous crime, Mm -hmm. but he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. However, a local reporter named James Long, rushing to meet a deadline, confused the eliminated suspect's name with a pseudonym used by the hijacker. Um, And then a wire service reporter republished the error, followed by numerous other media sources leading to D.B. Cooper being the name everyone remembers. What was the actual name? Dan Cooper. Oh. So, like, pretty close, but... Yeah, pretty close. Not quite. So, a specific search area was difficult to pinpoint because even small differences in the aircraft's speed or the environmental conditions along the flight path, which varied by location and altitude, Mm -hmm. changed Cooper's projected landing point a bunch. There was also the amount of time he re- he probably remained in free fall before pulling his ripcord if he was even able to. Neither of the Air Force fighter pilots that were tailing the plane saw anybody jump at all. Hmm. It, yeah, they never saw anything. Like Were they just zoned out? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but yeah, they didn't see anything like visually or on their radars and they never saw a parachute open, but it was dark out and there was limited visibility with cloud cover obscuring like ground lighting. So a man wearing all black falling from the sky probably would be really easy to miss. Yeah. Based on an experimental recreation, it was determined that the moment of the jump was most likely 8.13 p.m. when the plane was flying through a heavy rainstorm over Lewis River in southwest Washington. Initially, Cooper's landing zone was thought to be in the area just south of Mount St. Helens, just a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin, which is an artificial lake formed by a dam on Lewis River. Hmm. Search efforts focused on Clark and Cowlitz counties, encompassing the terrain south and north of the Lewis River, and FBI agents and sheriff's deputies from those counties searched uh, areas on foot and by helicopter. They also did door-to-door searches of local farmhouses. Other search parties ran patrol boats along Lake Merwin and Yell Lake, the reservoir to the east, and there was no trace of Cooper, the money, or the equipment he, that was thought to have br- been brought with him. Nice. Yes. Wonderful. They also coordinated an aerial search along the flight path from Seattle to Reno, although um, numerous broken treetops and several pieces of plastic and other objects kind of resembling parachute canopies were found and investigated. Nothing was relevant. Mm-hmm. Once spring came around in 1972, teams of FBI, aided by around 200 Army soldiers from Fort Lewis, along with Air Force personnel, National Guardsmen, and civilian volunteers, conducted another ground search of Clark and Cowlitz counties for 18 days, along with another 18 days in April. Nice. Electronic Explorations Company, a marine salvage firm, used a submarine to search Lake Merwin, and two local women stumbled upon a skeleton in an abandoned structure in Clark County. But it was later identified as the remains of a teenager who had been abducted and murdered several weeks before. Oh. I know. That's even worse. Ultimately, the search and recovery operation, which was arguably the most extensive and intensive in U.S. history, Mm. uncovered no significant material evidence related to the hijacking. Darn. Yeah. So... Where'd that money at? A month after the hijacking, the FBI distributed lists of the ransom serial numbers to financial institutions, casinos, casinos, casino, uh, casinos, racetracks, and other businesses that routinely conducted huge cash transactions, and to law enforcement agencies around the world. Northwest Orient offered a reward of 15% of the recovered money. And in early 1972, U.S. Attorney General John N. Mitchell released the serial numbers to the general public. That same year, two men used counterfeit $20 bills printed with Cooper's serial numbers to swindle $30,000 from a Newsweek reporter in exchange for an interview with a man they falsely claimed was the hijacker. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) I mean... It's kind of smart. Yeah. In early 1973, with the ransom money still missing, the Oregon Journal republished the serial numbers and offered $1,000 to the first person to turn in a ransom bill to the newspaper or any FBI field office. In Seattle, the Post-Intelligencer made a similar offer with a $5,000 reward. The offers remained in effect until Thanksgiving 1974, and though there were several near matches, no genuine bills were ever found. Mm, or, that sucks. Well. Well? So, after the data was reanalyzed, it was determined that the original landing zone estimate was inaccurate. 
Oh. Yeah, Scott, the pilot that was flying the aircraft manually because of Cooper's speed and altitude demands, later determined that his flight path was significantly farther east than initially thought. Additional data from a variety of sources, in particular one of the pilots tailing the plane, Mm -hmm. indicated that the wind uh, directions that had been factored into the initial calculations were wrong. This and other data suggested that the actual drop zone was probably south-southeast of the original estimate in the drainage area of the Washugal River. Washugal? Where at? In the drainage area of the Washugal River. (laughs) I meant land-wise, but... Washington. Okay. (laughs) So still in Washington, just a little bit more south-southeast. Okay. So the profile that the FBI did on Cooper said that he seemed to be familiar with the Seattle area and may have been an Air Force veteran. Like he said... Um, like, not only did he recognize the city of Tacoma from the air, but he also knew exactly where that McCord Air Force Base was, and which a regular civilian wouldn't have known or even commented on. Mm -hmm. The profile suggested that his financial situation was likely desperate, as most people who steal large amounts of money do so because they need it urgently, otherwise it's not worth the risk. Mm -hmm. On the flip side... He could have just been doing it because he was a thrill seeker and wanted to prove that he could make that jump just because he could. You know, with a couple thousand on him. But, like, both of them, both of those seem kind of odd to me because he seems so calm. Yeah. Normally, like, when people need that money really fast, they're, like... A little nervous. A little nervous, you know? And even if they're thrill seekers, they seem more, like, excited. Yeah. So, just how calm he was was kind of weird. One theory that came about was that Cooper took his name from a Belgian comic book series from the 1970s about a character named Dan Cooper, who was a Royal Canadian Air Force test pilot. So This is my favorite theory. Yeah, I yeah. I love this yeah. theory. So, these comics were never translated into English or uh, imported to the U.S., so it's thought that he either encountered them during a tour of duty in Europe or that Cooper was Canadian because the comics were sold there, too. Mm-hmm. And when he asked for the money, he specifically demanded negotiable American currency. Yeah. Which is an odd thing for an American to say. Yes, um, it is. Plus, the witnesses said that he didn't seem to have, like, a discernible accent. Mm-hmm. Like, so he was probably either... He was probably Canadian. I was gonna say, and most Canadians really don't have an accent. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody's got an accent, but they probably have like a an Less, accent that's similar to ours yeah yeah he's straight up, he had to have planned this for such a long time mm-hmm. like because he knew so many things like he seemed to be knowledgeable about flying techniques and aircrafts and he demanded four parachutes to make it seem like he would take hostages with him yeah. so that would like ensure that he wouldn't get a like deliberately bombed that he wouldn't get deliberately sabotaged equipment Oh, okay. He chose pretty much the perfect plane, not only because of the aft air stair, but also because the placement of all three engines, which allowed for a reasonably safe jump. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like he was going to jump out of the plane and go right into an engine. I don't know. Well, that's good. (laughs) I mean, that's not good, but it's also good. Um, Don't have to clean out blood from the engine. Blood, guts, and bones. Also, unlike most of the commercial jet airliners at the time, the 727 had the ability to remain in the slow, low-altitude flight without stalling, 
and Cooper knew how to control its speed and altitude without having to be in the cockpit, where he could have easily been over- overpowered by the pilots. Mm-hmm. He also knew the right flap settings that was unique to the plane, and he knew the typical refueling time. He knew that the aft air stair could be lowered during flight, which is something that wasn't ever disclosed to civilians, since there wasn't a situation that would make it necessary. He also knew that it could only be operated by a single switch in the rear of the cabin and couldn't be overridden from the cockpit. Smart. Ooh, ooh. Or he designed the plane. That is one of the theories. Okay. Yeah. Some people say that this knowledge was basically unique to CIA paramilitary units. Mm-hmm. So that's another theory. The FBI originally thought that Cooper was an was an experienced jumper, perhaps even a paratrooper. However, they eventually eventually concluded that that wasn't possible. The plane was flying at around 172 miles per hour when he jumped, and no experienced parachutist would have jumped in pitch black night in the rain with 172 miles per hour wind in his face wearing loafers and a trench coat. <laughs> like, that's insane. They have a point. He also missed that his reserve parachute was only for training and had been sewn shut. Oh. Something that a skilled skydiver would have checked because it had markings that clearly indicated that it was a dummy. Yeah. Uh, so he would have noticed that. And the FBI said that, that them giving him a uh, dummy was a complete accident. Sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah. He also failed to bring or request a helmet and chose to jump with the older and inferior parachute supplied to him, which he basically destroyed by using the pieces, they think, to tie a bag, the bag shut and then secure it to him, which uh-huh. when she saw him tying something around his waist when she, she went back into the cockpit, mm-hmm. that's what they think he was doing. And it was probably around 15 degrees Fahrenheit at that altitude at the time of year, and he didn't have anything to protect him from the elements. Oh. Yeah. Other than that, <laughs> it's been suggested that he really thought ahead, planned when he could do it, and what to wear. Other than how cold it was, I guess. <laughs> so, like, it was like, if you're planning on going back to work on Monday, then you would need as much time as possible to, like, get out of the woods, get transportation, get home. And the very, the best time for this would be a four-day weekend, which it was because it was Thanksgiving weekend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And if he had planned on hitchhiking out of the woods, it's more likely someone pick up a man in a suit than just some dude walking in, like, sweatpants or some shit. Yeah. I mean, he's not wrong about that. Yeah. The FBI speculated that he might not have even survived the jump. Mm-hmm. Like, terrible conditions, bad equipment, seemingly no plan, landing in, in the wilderness. In all reality, he probably never even got his chute open. And even if he landed safely, he most likely landed in a really harsh terrain, so having a planned landing point with all of that, not likely. Mm -hmm. Aside from the physical description, that's remained unchanged and was corroborated by multiple witnesses who were interviewed in separate states on the same night, there have been very few pieces of evidence found. So in 1978, a placard printed with instructions for lowering the aft stairs of a 727 was found by a deer hunter near a logging road about 13 miles east of Castle Rock, Washington, which is well north of Lake Merwin, but within the Flight 305's flight plan. Mm -hmm. In February 1980, eight-year-old Brian Ingram was vacationing with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina or Tenna Bar about nine miles downstream from Vancouver, Washington. 
and 20 miles south southwest of Ariel. He uncovered three packets of the ransom cash on the beach. Oh, wow. And raking the sand to make a fire. The bills were significantly disintegrated, but still bundled in rubber bands. The FBI technicians confirmed that the money was a portion of the ransom, all arranged in the same exact order as when given to Cooper. In 1986, after negotiations, the recovered bills were divided equally between Ingram and Northwest Orient's insurer. So he got to keep some of them. That's awesome. Yeah, I think That's he what I was sold, just thinking. Yeah, he sold some of them in auction for like $37,000. Wow. So. Good for him. Yeah. Um, oh, the FBI retained uh, 14 examples as evidence. And to date, none of the remaining 9,710 bills have turned up anywhere in the world. Wow. Okay. Some investigators have speculated that the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens may have obliterated any remaining clues in the area. You know what? Yeah. Yeah. So... In 2017, a group of volunteer investigators uncovered what they believed to be potential evidence. It was like what appeared to be a decades-old parachute strap in Mm -hmm. the Pacific Northwest. And later in August 2017, a piece of foam was found, which was suspected to be part of Cooper's backpack. Uh, A lot of people think that Cooper lost the ransom during the descent, and one journalist even suggested that Cooper dumped the ransom, knowing he could never spend it. Hmm... Between 1971 and 2016, the FBI processed over a thousand serious suspects, which included assorted publicity seekers, which included assorted publicity seekers and deathbed confessors, but nothing more than circumstantial evidence could be found to implicate any of them. Hmm. I wanted to put in all of these suspects. I really did. But it was like... An extra five pages. Yeah, I know. Um, a lot of copycats tried to do the same thing as Cooper. Like, starting just a year after he hijacked the plane, there was, like, a bunch. A lot, yeah. In early 1973, the FAA began requiring airlines to search all passengers in their bags, and the FAA required that all Boeing 727s be fitted with a device called the Cooper Vane that prevents the lowering of the aft air stair during flight, and peepholes were installed so the crew could observe the people in the passenger cabin without having to open the cockpit door. Mm, Smart. In 1976, a Portland grand jury uh, indicted in absentia John Doe, a.k.a. Dan Cooper, for air piracy and violation of the Hobbs Act. The indictment formally initiated prosecution that can be continued should the hijacker be apprehended at any time in the future. Mm. Yeah, so it's been a while, so... (laughs) On July 8th, 2016, the FBI announced that it was suspending active investigation of the Cooper case, citing a need to focus its investigative resources and manpower on issues of higher and more urgent priority. Local field offices will continue to accept any evidence, like Mm. any legitimate evidence, Mm -hmm. related to the parachutes or the ransom money. The 60-volume case file compiled over 45 years of the investigation will be preserved for historical purposes at the FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C. And on the FBI website, you can actually read a 28-part packet full of evidence gathered over the years. 28? Yeah. All of the evidence is open for the public to read. And 
That is D.B. Cooper. Oh my god, that just blew my mind. Like, just reading through all of the suspects, I really wanted to add a bunch of them, because some of them seemed kind of legit, Yeah, and they seemed really interesting, but I don't think, I don't know. Well, wait, when did, when did it happen again? What year? 1971. So, the year after my mom was born. So, I mean, he could still theoretically be alive. Yeah. Just older yeah okay yeah wow just wow yeah all right so now that my long ass story is over <laughs> now that your long ass story is over we're gonna go into another one and if i'm constantly stopping it's because i use the talk to text feature <laughs> <laughs> so oh man it might not have understood my words properly, so if I stop for a second, it's because I'm trying to process what is written. This is going to be so fun. I can't it, wait. Yes. So, my sources are organencyclopedia.com, wikipedia.com, animalplanet.com, cryptids.fandom.com, blogs.scientificamerican.com, bfro.net. Okay. <laughs> Britannica.com, organwild.com. My story this week is Sasquatch. Yay! Or, as most people know him, him, them, they, Bigfoot. Bigfoot. She. Him, she, them, they. Yes. The creature is said to be hairy, upright walking, and ape-like, and lives in the wilderness. They are often portrayed as the missing link between humans and our human ancestors slash other great apes. They have most frequently been seen in the Pacific Northwest, primarily in Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. They are normally seen as being between 6 to 15 feet tall, often giving off a foul smell, and either move silently or emits a high-pitched cry. Oh. They are generally shy, non-aggressive, and have human-like intelligence, thus making them elusive and rarely seen. Same. <laughs> Same. <laughs> there are legends of similar creatures that predate the name Bigfoot. While they differ in details regionally, most, cre- most creatures... Most creepypastas. Most creepy pastas, such as this, no. Most cultures have accounts of human-like giants in their folklore. However, with many different cultures and regions, these creatures all have different names. However, the names pretty much all translate to mean wild man or hairy man. Mm-hmm. And if the creature doesn't, if the name doesn't translate to that, typically the creature will be called names that describe something it does, Ooh. such as. Eating clams. <laughs> eating <laughs> or shaking clams. trees. Shaking trees. Eating clams, shaking trees. That's just the translation. That's not the actual names, but yeah. <laughs> That's so fucking cool. <laughs> title. Title. Eating clams, shaking trees. <laughs> Members of the Lumi tribe on the coast of Washington tell stories of the Semekwes. They are the most similar to Bigfoot or Sasquatch. Then there are some more threatening versions. The Stiaha or Quiquiaya were a nocturnal only variants. 
children were warned to not speak the creature's names because if the creature heard them, it would then come and carry them away and possibly kill them. Oh, gotta love it. Scare your children. Yep, scare your children and children. I can't talk. Then there are the skookums, which are a race of cannibalistic wildmen who live on the peak of Mount St. Helen. Helen's. Cute. Yeah. As terrifying as these versions of Bigfoot are, there is also a very mild version. According to a Protestant missionary by the name of Ekelana Walker... There are stories of giants who live amongst the natives near Spokane, Washington. Hmm. These giants lived on and around the peaks of nearby mountains. And the only thing they would do, they would just sneak down the sides of the mountain and steal salmon from the fishermen's nets. Literally, all they would do. Work smarter, not harder. Uh-huh. They don't even have to do the work for the food. Mm-hmm. In 1920, Native American agent J.W. Burns compiled local stories of Bigfoot and published them in a series of Canadian newspaper articles. These stories had been told to him by the local styles, people, and other regional tribes. These tribes all believe that the creature is real, like not questioning at all. I mean, my dad too, so. Yeah. They were even offended whenever people would tell them that the creatures were only legends. Yeah, that's kind of rude. Yeah. Like, they genuinely believe in something. Don't tell them that it's not real. Exactly. The Styles told Byrne that Sasquatch preferred to avoid white men and spoke the Lillooet <laughs> language. Also, I cannot tell you if I said that right or not. I did not write that down. Oh. Like the other ones that I wrote down. Well, it was talk to text, so. Well, yeah, but I went in and put the... There were some things I went back and... Oh, some things. Some things. Some not things normal words. This was all republished again in 1940, where Burns then borrowed the term Sasquatch from the Saskets. Hmm. Now, on to some stories and first-hand accounts. Ooh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to know, I apparently sound so Southern. The talk to text... This guy's name is Fred, okay? Fred? Fred. Yeah. It wrote it down as fried. Fried? <laughs> oh, uh, okay. Fried. Fried. For six years, Fred Beck and a group of prospectors were- You know what? I can hear it. Fried Beck. <laughs> I can hear it. It also put fried back. Fried back. <laughs> uh well, they were prospecting in and around a Washington mountain range near Mount St. Helens. Oh. During this time, they were frequently finding large tracks, Ooh. some measuring up to 17 inches. Oh, wow. And the group were unable to identify any of them. Jeez, yeah, because it's longer than your forearm. Yeah. Well, and also, you have to think, these are prospectors. They're constantly out in the wild. They know what yeah. barefoot friends footprints look like they know what pretty much every animal footprint looks like yeah i feel like if i saw a track like that and i'd be like peace yeah peace i'm out while they were super apprehensive the group carried on why not you know yeah why not for the heck of it whatever this thing is huge and can probably kill us but let's keep going oh yeah 
In the summer of 1924, the group was working on a gold claim in what has now become known as Ape Canyon. Nice. They shared a super sturdy log cabin that they had built. And every night while sleeping in the cabin, they would hear weird noises coming from all around them outside. I don't like that. It was a whistling noise. No! And then a thumping. Nope. 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 No thanks. And they're still staying here. Ugh. One day, Fred and his friend Hank were wandering the forest as they were headed out to get water. Hank then saw, hiding behind a pine tree over a small canyon, a creature that was seven feet tall and covered in black-brown fur. The men began shooting at the creature. Oh. I'm not real sure why, if it was just standing there, being, you know... You're afraid of things you don't understand. I... I guess. Well, the creature then disappeared down the side of the canyon. (laughs) (laughs) That night... The two told a group of what had happened. They then unanimously agreed to head home. It scared them enough. Okay, good. They just saw the creature and it scared them enough. Good, go home. Leave them alone. Yeah, leave them alone. They just had to wait it out for the rest of the night because they were afraid of encountering the creature in the dark. Oh, yeah. So they went to sleep as normal. However, it only lasted until midnight. Mm-hmm. The group of prospectors were startled awake by a tremendous thud against the wall of the cabin. Nope. Hank, who had been asleep on the floor when all this first started, was able to see through the chinking in the wall that had appeared because of whatever was thrown against the wall. No. And he saw three ape-like creatures. Similar to the one he had seen by the canyon. It's a family. It is. It's a family. These mountain devils, as they called them, were hurling rocks at the cabin and attempting to break down the door. Hey, you did it to them. It's only right they do it to you. Well, one thing that I didn't include in my notes is in the source where I was reading all this. Apparently, one of them creatures managed to reach his arm through the big gaping hole in the wall and pulled at the handle of an axe (gasps) and was trying to pull it through the wall. Oh, shit. Yeah. This attack lasted until sunrise, at which point the creatures finally backed off when it was finally bright enough outside that the prospectors could see. They eased their way out of the cabin because there's apparently no better time to escape. The group packed as much as they could into their backpacks and left the area as quickly as they could yeah apparently not long after walking out of the cabin that morning fred noticed that one of the creatures were on the edge of the canyon about 80 yards away he shot at it oh and this time i didn't miss the creature apparently tumbled down to the canyon floor but the body was never recovered Mm-hmm. because he made it up he made it up Maybe. Maybe, maybe not. It was too strong and it didn't even hurt it. And it went home and it had a good life. Yes. Another Sasquatch story is from Albert Ostman. On October 20th, 1957, Albert Ostman, who was 64 years old, confessed to having been stolen away in his sleep by a Sasquatch. (laughs) Apparently, in 1924... 
he was a young lumberjack and woodsman. They didn't have alien abductions back then. It was Sasquatch abductions. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. He was visiting the Toba Inlet in British Columbia on vacation and searching for gold. Because we all like to search for gold. Yeah. While vacationing, you know. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, I would like to go into those places where you get to, like, sift, like, rocks for, like, gems and stuff. Do you want to go to uh, Squire Boone Caverns? You can do that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. We'll go through the uh, the cavern, too. Okay. Well, he had heard stories of the man-like creatures that were wandering the area, but, of course, didn't believe in any of them. So, one evening... Ow. He was sleeping... And supposedly, Sasquatch just picked him right up. <laughs> Sleeping bag and all. All right. Just carried him away. I'm just imagining Bigfoot just picking him up, slinging him over the shoulder. <laughs> new pet. Let's go. Yep. New pet. It, well, exactly. Me with every cat I've ever met in my life. Yes. He was carried for three hours across the country before being dropped onto a plateau surrounded by a family of four of the creatures. Oh. There were three adults and a child. According to his report, one was roughly eight feet tall. He was kept captive by them for six days. He could not bring himself to use his gun because they weren't doing any harm to him. And in fact, it almost seems, to me at least, that they were keeping him as a pet. Like you said. Mm. They fed him what he said was sweet tasting grass. <laughs> okay. I, I'm not entirely sure what kind of grass that could be. Me either. Is there a sweet tasting grass? I don't think so. If you know, Maybe they just got grass us. and like put sugar on it. Maybe it was lemongrass. Oh, maybe. Uh, I don't, maybe some sugar cane that they stripped. Maybe? I don't know. No, I don't know. Well... He was finally able to get away when he fed the larger male Sasquatch tobacco snuff, and he became groggy. (laughs) Okay. Well, his reasoning behind not telling his story for 24 years is because he was afraid of being thought of as crazy. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. However, as more Sasquatch stories appeared publicly, he felt it was finally time to tell his. All right. You do you, bud. We got some more woodworkers coming up here. Oh, okay. After 1958, woodworkers around Cascade Mountains began to report seeing creatures and stumbling upon their tracks along logging roads. This ultimately helped to bring Bigfoot into the public eye. These humanoid creatures were seen crossing roads at night, sneaking around the forest and mountains, or digging for and eating ground squirrels. Oh. Also, by the way, ground squirrels are super cute. I know you sent me a picture of one. Is that why you sent yeah. me a picture of one? Okay. <laughs> they are so cute. Were you just like, oh, I've never seen a ground squirrel and looked it up? So cute. Bigfoot quickly became an everyday thing for loggers. Uh-huh. Now, for the most well-known Bigfoot sighting. The Patterson-Gimlin film. Yay! Apparently, one day in fall of 1967, Roger Patterson, by the way, who's a big Bigfoot. I was going to say connoisseur. Connoisseur. That's not the right word. (laughs) You know what? Let's keep it. He's a Bigfoot connoisseur. Connoisseur of fine Bigfoots. (laughs) 
Yeah, he's a big Bigfoot researcher, does, like, all the Bigfoot stuff. Expert. Ex- I wouldn't say expert. Oh. <laughs> but, yes. Uh, anyway, Roger Fair. Patterson and his friend Robert Gimlin set off on horseback in order to investigate it, investigate claims of a mysterious ape-like creature roaming the woods of Orleans, California. All right. It is here that the two filmed what is the most iconic footage of a Bigfoot ever taken. The Bigfoot that is shown in the film has come to be known by many as Patty. Patty. Her name is Patty. The clip that I'm speaking about is only 59 seconds long, but shows a, obviously a hairy humanoid figure, notably female, walking through the woods of Bluff Creek. Apparently, as the creature walks away, Patterson chases after it Mm. until he's about 80 yards away, at which point the creature then looked at him. He later described it as disgust. The creature looked at him in disgust. That's right. Don't follow women around. You don't know her. Exactly. Obviously, the creature gets away. However, however, the two later brought plaster and made casts of the footprints left behind before leaving in hopes of recruiting a search party. However, any hope of searching for the Sasquatch that they caught on film was shattered because of a forecast of heavy rain and flooding that was going to trap them in Bluff Creek. Just a forecast. Not, like, actual, just just the forecast of rain. Oh, it's gonna rain tomorrow, gotta go. Yeah, pretty much. Patterson believed to his death that this creature was real. And Gimlin still tells everyone that he was never involved in any hoax. Hmm. While this film may be the most famous piece of evidence, the best form of evidence we have to date are tracks that have been left across North America. These tracks are typically 15 to 17 inches long. So the one those guys found, way bigger. And roughly 30% wider than the typical human footprint. The first documented discovery was in winter of 1811 in Alberta, Canada. A man by the name of David Thompson discovered large sets of footprints in the Rockies that had been deeply impacted in the snow. Like, just stomping. I stomped Uh, through the snow, too. I feel that. (laughs) Me, too. He was convinced that these tracks did not belong to a bear. And if you think about it, a humanish foot compared to a barefoot. Kind of different things, yeah. Yeah, they don't look similar at all. In the logging area of Bluff Creek, California, as mentioned above in the famous above, as mentioned before in the famous filming of Sasquatch, footprints were discovered almost a daily during the 1950s. It is here that the first footprint was cast and Bigfoot was really brought to the media. By 1980, there were over 200 reports of footprints in just Northern California. That's a fucking lot. That, yep, and that's in 30 years. Jeez. One particular set of footprints discovered in 1969 is that of the Bosberg Sasquatch, given the name Cripplefoot. Oh. 
The tracks were discovered leading through the snow in Bosburg, Washington, and they were 17 inches long and pointed to a crippling deformity in the right foot. Huh. And if you look at the cast of it, one of the toes is noticeably pointed the wrong way. Mm. Okay. So it's like it broke it and it set wrong. Oh. In 1982, one of the tracks that was discovered by the U.S. Forest Service in the state of Washington seemed to appear to possess dermal ridges and sweat pores. These tracks were found to be similar to those of primates, and after a lot of analysis, most researchers concluded that these could not have been faked. Oh. So, like, they looked like footprints. Prints and all. Huh. In early 1970, I'm sorry, by the way, we're just kind of jumping around in the years. Oh, that's fine. In early 1970, a group of friends, including Al Berry and Ron Moorhead, were camping in the Sierra Nevada mountains of eastern California. Over the course of several months, strange sounds were heard that carried throughout the area surrounding their lodge. The sounds that were recorded by Al Berry with a portable tape recorder that was hung on a tree branch are thought to be Sasquatch vocalizations and possibly its own language that's cool it's super cool right as long as it's not saying sasquatch sasquatch uh, I, like pokemon i doubt that it's a I psyduck know. or something dude <laughs> i'm sorry i'm a nerd barry <laughs> believes <Pikachu>. this <laughs> barry barry believing that this might be a hoax searched the camp, and found no indication of anyone messing with him. However, he did discover a set of large footprints in the snow and pine needles. Like every other sighting, just giant footprint. While whatever creature made these sounds was cl- that were clearly heard, nothing was ever seen. Mr. Barry passed away believing that what he heard in the mountains, now known as the Sierra Sounds, was the language of a very intelligent species that'd be cool though it'd be so cool all right so on to possible explanations for what bigfoot might be first of all aliens (laughs) there are claims that bigfoot and ufos are related or that bigfoot creatures are psychic and completely supernatural Another possible explanation is that all these people who are seeing Bigfoot are just misidentifying the creature. In 2007, the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization released some photos of what they claimed was a juvenile Bigfoot. However, the Pennsylvania Game Commission said that the photos were a bear with mange. Okay. Yeah. I've heard that one before. Yeah. Both Bigfoot believers and non-believers agree that most of the reported sightings are actually misidentifications and hoaxes. One popular hoax is that by Rick Dyer and Matthew Witten. On July 9th, 2008, they posted a video to YouTube claiming that they had discovered the body of a dead Sasquatch hmm. in a northern Georgia forest. They received $50,000 U.S. from Searching for Bigfoot Incorporated as a good faith gesture while an investigation was being held. I'm sorry, $50,000 is a good, no. As a good faith gesture, yeah. 
The story was covered by many major news networks, including BBC, CNN, ABC News, and Fox News. After a press conference, the body of the Bigfoot was delivered in a block of ice. When everything thawed, they found that the hair was not real. Uh. The head was hollow. Oh! And the feet were made of rubber. What the fuck? Dryan Witten soon admitted that it was a hoax. After they were confronted by Steve Coles, the executive director of SasquatchDetective.com. Jesus. In August of 2012, a Montana man was killed by a car while pretending to be Bigfoot using a, what is it, a ghillie suit? Mm. Those um, furry suits that you Furry wore. suit? Yeah, <laughs> a furry suit. It's a furry suit. Uh, yeah, he was pretending to be a Bigfoot and he got killed because he was hit by a car. All right. Which, you know, I'm sorry for his family. But don't hoax people. All right. Back to Rick Dyer. Mm-hmm. In January 2014, six years later. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, six years later. He said that he killed a Bigfoot mm. in September of 2012. So, like, in 2008, they find a dead Bigfoot that just so happens to be fake. Right. In 2012, he kills a Bigfoot, but doesn't announce it until 2014. Red flag. Also, this happened in Texas. He apparently killed it in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, That's a little far outside of the... uh, The usual area. yeah, Yeah, the Bigfoot territory. Dyer said that he kept the body in a hidden location for two years. For what purpose? He intended to take it on tour across North America. Of course he did. In 2014. And he did. No. He released photos and videos of the body, even showing a few individuals' reactions but he never released any actual tests or scans and refused to disclose any test results or provide biological samples. Of course he didn't, because it's fake. Mm-hmm. Dyer said that he was going to reveal the body on February 9th, 2014, at a news conference in Washington University. However, the test results were never made available, of course. On March 28th, 2014, Dyer finally admitted on Facebook that his Bigfoot corpse was yet another hoax. Of course it was. Uh-huh. It was just a prop that he nicknamed Hank. Hank. It was mm. created by Chris Russell out of latex, foam, and camel hair. Ew. Yeah, the camel hair is what threw me. He did, however, earn quite a bit of money from the tour that he went on roughly $60,000. However, he did say that he actually did kill a Bigfoot, but he just didn't take the real body on tour for fear that it would be stolen. Oh, shut up. Make what you will of that. Like you can't keep on lying and then people expect people to believe you about stuff. Mm-hmm. God. Yep. Another theory is that Bigfoot could be a long-extinct hominid. However, the hominid and other bipedal creatures that are most likely possible candidates 
for Bigfoot's identity seem to only be found in Africa and Asia. One Soviet scientist by the name of Boris Borshnev believes that Sasquatch and his Siberian counterpart, the Almas, which I'm going to have to do more research into. Yeah, I don't know about that one. Are possibly remnants of Neanderthals. However, most science do not even recognize the creature's existence. Right. And some suggest, along with Neanderthals, Homo erectus or Homo (laughs) Hadelbergensis. 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 Bergensis. All right. H E I D E L B E R G E N S I S. And this was one that I had to type in because talk to text wasn't working. Sure. And again, the remains of these species have never been found in the Americas. Mm-hmm. Back to the scientists don't recognize creatures' existence. They also believe that. Bigfoot is not a good area of credible science because there have been no real formal scientific studies. Yeah. Yeah. One scientist who was a cultural anthropologist at the University of Buffalo said, It defies all logic that there is a population of these things sufficient to keep them going. Yeah, especially since nobody's seen them. Mm-hmm. Or like nobody's really seen them or interacted with them. What it takes to maintain a species, especially a long-lived species, is you've got to have a breeding population. That requires a substantial number spread out over a fairly wide area, or they can find sufficient food and shelter to keep hidden from all of the investigators. They're in the caves. In fact, during the 1970s, when so-called Bigfoot experts were given high-profile media coverage... The actual scientific community avoided lending credence to the theories or debating them. Yeah. And I could go further into science. However, I believe that we all need to believe in something. So it doesn't hurt to let someone believe in something. Okay, that's actually what I have. But Bigfoot today is very popular when it comes to media of any kind. Mm-hmm. I've got a good... Page and a half here of things Bigfoot is seen in. My favorite. Can I tell you my favorite? Sure. It's um, So Weird. So Weird. Yeah. Let me see if that's on the here. episode of So Weird where uh, Fiona meets um, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, whatever you want to call him, in the woods. And uh, there's this like construction company that's going to come in and bulldoze the area that he's living in so she convinces him to leave the area Mm -hmm. because she can't stop them from uh the construction yeah i've never seen that Mm -hmm. bigfoot is seen in a 1977 board game called bigfoot the giant snow monster game uh i'm gonna look that up immediately Uh i need that And in Harry and the Hendersons, Disney's The Goofy Movie, (laughs) Futurama, Red Dead Redemption, and the expansion pack titled Undead Nightmare, Hmm. 
the cryptid island update of pop tropica i have no idea what that is i have no idea what that is a bigfoot hunting show on animal planet called finding bigfoot the sci-fi original movie bigfoot (laughs) the smartphone app called disco zoo okay a puzzle game called jacob jones and the and the bigfoot mystery episode one released in steam which I'm going to have to look up because I have Steam on my computer. Okay. GTA 5. Call of Duty Infinite Warfare. <laughs> a horror film called Bigfoot Blood Trap. A DLC game called Two Point Hospital Bigfoot. And literally a game called Bigfoot. There are so many games, like video games. Yeah. Bigfoot related on Steam. That's kind of, that's weird. That's a little weird. Like, also, I thought that this list would have more like movie appearances. Yeah. It doesn't have sh- uh, so weird in here, like you said. Yeah. But it did have a Goofy movie. A lot of people don't think, I don't even remember Bigfoot being in the Goofy movie. He was in the uh, Goofy movie. We'll have to watch it and show you. Okay. But he was in it. I remember him. Because okay. he really liked the cheese. Oh, okay. Yeah. I forgot all about that. I haven't seen that in a really long time. It's, it's fantastic. That's what that is. All right. So that's what I have. I'm sorry. I didn't end that in a more interesting way. Okay. But that's also kind of where my research left off. There's no, there's no proof. There's no non-proof. Yeah. Yeah. Even even though there's no proof or non-proof, people continue to believe in it. And so. people continue to put down people for believing in it. Yeah. When, again, what's it hurting that they believe? All right. Uh, yep. That's all we have for today. It's a long episode. Um, hope you all enjoyed it. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Myths and Misfortunes or Twitter at Myths Misfortunes. Or you can just search for us using our full name, Myths and Misfortunes, will pop up. You can also send us an email to mythsandmisfortunes at gmail.com. Our music was composed by McKean Fulbright, and our art was created by Heather Marie Atkins. Their websites can be found in the description below. Please, we implore you, rate, review, subscribe. We are your humble podcasters. Please, we implore you. We are yes, your yes. humble podcasters. Please send us an email, too. That'd be, I mean. Guys, we want to start doing some listener stories. Yeah, so if but you have we don't any... have enough stories to start doing, like, consistent things. Yes. It'd be, um, be great. Yeah. yeah. So, um, thanks so much for listening. And. Oh, goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.